Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Monday, April 3rd, the gender-affirming care for kids edition. I'm Zach Rosen. I make another show. It's called The Best Advice Show, and I'm the dad to Noah, who's five, and Ami, who's two. We live in Detroit. I'm Jamila Lemieux. I'm a writer and contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and I am mom to Naima, who is now 10, and we live in Los Angeles. And I'm Evan Urquhart. I run a website called Assigned Media where I monitor and fact-check anti-trans propaganda on the U.S. right. And I live in Charlottesville, and I I used to foster teens, but I don't have any kids with me right now. We're so glad to have you back, Evan. Evan recently penned a clarifying piece for Slate about what to do regarding the unknowns surrounding gender-affirming health care for kids. There has been a wave of coverage in places like the New York Times and New York Magazine expressing concern that young people who currently identify as trans may grow out of it and regret more permanent healthcare avenues like hormones or surgery. Evan has been covering these issues for years and is going to explain what is missing from the ongoing debate over access to gender-affirming care. We're also going to do a round of recommendations where we tell you what we're loving right now. Then we'll wrap up the show with a few letters from you. See you back here in a second. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Okay, Evan, I want to start by reading the opening paragraph from your piece called... There are two sides to the debate on healthcare for trans kids. Here's what you're missing about one of them. And that came out on March 8th. We'll link to it in the show notes. It starts, quote, here are some things we know about gender affirming healthcare. We know that the number of young patients being seen by gender clinics has increased and that the gender balance of these young patients has changed with more female assigned youth seeking care. We don't see the same gender imbalance outside of clinics where young people identify as trans in roughly equal numbers, regardless of birth assigned sex. We also know that autism is more common in trans youth than in the broader population. You go on to write that we don't know why these things are true, but there has been this wave of concern from good faith debaters, which is important because there's a bunch of bad faith debaters, uh, people out there who are just trying to ban access for all trans people. But the good faith people are worried that minors are too young to access gender affirming health care because they might regret it down the road. So before we move on to the debate aspect of this, let's get some context. What do we know about the ability to access care and what that care results in right now in 2023? Yeah, so we know that there aren't a lot of kids in the U.S. who are accessing this care. There's less than 
than 20,000 total um, children, which it might sound like a large number, but when you think of every child in the U.S., it's a, yeah. it's, um, you know, a much less than, than half of uh, 1%. And we kind of know that the amount of trans people is a, is a lot higher than the number of kids accessing care. In almost all cases, there is a lengthy assessment process. It usually takes many months. It involves therapy. It involves meetings with, you know, different providers. And an assessment is made about whether a kid would benefit from different things. Most often, the first step is social transition. So that's just might be using a different name. It might be using a different pronoun. It's often getting a haircut or, you know, having different clothing style. And then for kids who seem to be stable in that social transition, usually for for years or at least more than, you know, more than a few months, there's a conversation about whether different medical steps might be right for that particular kid. So one step, if a kid is quite young and transitioned, you know, when they were before puberty, might be puberty blockers, which would just halt the process of puberty to give them more time, to give the family more time and the kids more time to kind of be sure that they want to move on to cross-sex hormones, which for trans youth can make the difference between, you know, really growing up looking like any other person or growing up looking, you know, very different from an adult of the gender that you're a member of, um, which can be very closely associated with a lot of the discrimination and difficulty that trans people, particularly trans women, I would say, face. So you've broken down public reactions to this issue into two main camps. There are people that believe that young people, along with their doctors and parents, should be able to make decisions about receiving gender-affirming care and that they should have unfettered access to it. And then there are those people who believe that making this decision at an early point in one's life could lead to regret. Can you talk about the big difference between these two groups and where do most people seem to fall? One of the differences between these two groups is that that one side is concerned that not enough kids are getting a treatment that could really, really help their lives. And, you know, I think a lot of times people talk about suicide rates, which is a very real issue for trans youth and trans people. But I always like to kind of get beyond the just like life and death and talk about mm-hmm. homelessness rates, talk about um, inpatient hospitalizations. So, you know, you have a kid who's suicidal, they're probably going to be sent to an inpatient psych unit. And if you're not able to help the issue that's causing that, they may be sent again. And so then their entire, you know, adolescence could be sort of defined by these hospitalizations as opposed to them being able to get on with their life and be a normal kid. So those are kind of the decisions that these parents and doctors are kind of making. And so on one hand, there are people who think we need to get this treatment that seems to help some or or most or many of these kids. We need to make sure more of these kids are able to get this treatment. And then the other side are people who are really worried about what if we give this treatment to some of the wrong kids? Like, what if some of the wrong kids get this treatment and they regret it later? Or even if they don't regret it, because an interesting thing when you look at detransition rates is that a lot of people who detransition don't actually really feel regret. They feel like this was a a process, this was a journey I needed to be on, and I don't really regret anything I did, but I'm in a different place now. So those are the, the kind of two big camps are people who feel like we need to get 
you know, get more access and kind of reduce some of these barriers so the kids can benefit and people who are really worried about the risks. What do we know about the detransition data or what do we have of that? I mean, yeah. So I think there are a lot of real misconceptions. The first one being one that I already mentioned, which is a lot of people think that detransition is the same thing as regret. So Mm -hmm. um, because most of the people who have detransitioned, who you see most in the press are kind of associated with a political effort to restrict gender affirming care. So they kind of find the ones who really feel a lot of regret. And those stories are, you know, are totally real. They're, these are people who have, you know, real emotions about something that they feel went wrong in their life. But for most people who detransition, um, there it doesn't seem like there's that regret feeling as much. A lot of them feel that they were that they were really more non-binary and that they don't really want to be seen as the opposite sex, but they don't necessarily want to be seen as their birth sex either. And then some of them just feel like, well, this was a journey I was on. So the exact number of people who detransition is really difficult to pin down. Surgical res- regret has been studied a lot more than anything else. And the surgical regret rates are very, very low. Sort of almost suspiciously low. If you look at other kinds of surgery, you'll see a regret rate that's maybe in the 20% is usually considered like, oh, this is a successful surgery. It helps a lot of people. 20% of the people, you know, it didn't work for them, but we feel, you know, like this is good. So for trans people, it's not uncommon to find a 1% or a 1% to 2% rate of surgical regret, which suggests that maybe there are people who could use this surgery that aren't being let um access it because their greatest regret rate is really so unusually low for what we consider a successful medical procedure. Mm-hmm. But um, everyone who detransitions doesn't necessarily, isn't someone who gets surgery. Like trans people, you know, like other people, like surgery is a lot more expensive, a lot more difficult. You know what I mean? So, so the more invasive an intervention is, the less people um, access it. So if you're talking about regret from uh, just a social transition, there isn't really numbers on that, but we would imagine that that would be a lot higher. But also, you know, you just changed your haircut, you could just change it back. It's probably not, you know, that big a deal or something people need to be worried about. And then for hormones, I mean, I think the most recent information I've seen had that rate in the maybe three to 4% rate of people who took hormones and then either felt that hormones weren't right for them, but they were perfectly okay with having taken them or felt that they regretted having taken them. What is the impact of this debate on professionals that are providing the care? I think it is really difficult on on providers on both sides of the debate. I mean, I think my sympathies are probably a little more with providers who are really trying to get a treatment that they really believe is saving lives and improving lives to young people and are being demonized. They're being accused of, you know, trying to to force this on kids, of they're, they're being accused of, you know, a child abuse and all of this terrible stuff. And I think that that is, a lot of these people are really um, committed and, and really believe in the work that they're doing to help trans youth. And they see they see young people's lives kind of really turning around and to be, you know, kind of demonized in this way, I think is really difficult for them. But I also think it's very difficult for professionals who have concerns to feel that the trans community is very angry about that, is very um, not interested in kind of listening to that, um, and and to feel that they're kind of not able to voice those concerns in a way that isn't taken as very political and very kind of anti-trans. How long have you been covering this? 
Oh, I looked this up recently. I think I have been, I mean, I've been writing about trans issues since before I publicly came out as trans for Slate and for other um, outlets. But I think my first like medical article was five or six years ago. And so in that time, have you noticed that healthcare providers are, you know, evolving or just changing their their protocols or the ways in which they kind of interact with with incoming youth who are possibly interested in in some of the um, interventions? Yeah. So, I mean, I think my article was really trying to explain the scientific side of the move to do less gatekeeping. And I think right. when you talk about less gatekeeping, this isn't give kids hormones on the first visit. That's like a caricature. But it's, you know, maybe they don't need six months of therapy, like, especially if they've been socially transitioned for quite a long time. It's it's that kind mm-hmm. of thing where it's like, well, let's look at the individual case and, um, you know, maybe make a little more room for kids whose parents have been supportive of them from a very young age, who have been kind of stable in their gender identity since they were very young and not kind of have quite as many hoops for a kid like that. Now, I I do think that it is an individualized process. So if there is a kid who has a lot of, um, you know, concurrent psychological difficulties, if their family is very uncomfortable, like there's always going to be things that kind of slow it down. Evan, at any point while you've been monitoring these conversations or leading them yourself, have you witnessed anybody have a change of heart about this issue oh, in either I direction? absolutely have. I mean, I, I really enjoy talking with people who are, who are kind of scared about this issue, who really do have, you know, reasonable concerns about this issue, because I do think that people... A lot of people don't necessarily believe that the side that I am, you know, closer to, the side that I represent more, the side that's kind of in favor of reducing the gatekeeping a little bit and getting these um, treatments to more kids, they don't necessarily think that there are people who are really thoughtful and who have really thought through these issues and have really considered their position on that side. It's often really painted as like trans activists, uh, trans activists are great. But, you know, who are just pushing a position versus kind of scientists who have really thought mm-hmm. through the evidence. So I've absolutely talked to, especially, you know, I'm Slate's comment moderator guy, and commenters are a feisty bunch. So I've talked with a lot of people who I think have kind of become, you know, more comfortable. They may still have concerns sometimes, but understanding why parents are making these decisions, why that might be the right decision for, you know, for many youth who end up getting these treatments. You know, I always try to say that trans people don't have anything to fear from journalism or from the truth. It's not about trying to suppress questions or to suppress, you know, any reported aspect of the story. It's just trying to make sure that the full picture is being shown. Have you had conversations with with proponents of the social contagion (laughs) theory, like people who think that? Well, first, maybe describe what that what that is, um, and then talk about whatever personal experience you, you may have or haven't had um, in w- you know with these conversations. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I transitioned about seven years ago, and that was right around when the idea um, that so so the social contagion idea is specifically that young people, particularly young people who are female assigned, and they will usually call these teenage girls, are 
being drawn into diagnoses of gender dysphoria, you know, because they are seeing this in their peers, because they are seeing this online. And the theory kind of makes an analogy to suicidality, which we do know people are more likely to be suicidal if that's kind of normalized in either through media or in their, Mm -hmm. you know, family or in their friend group. Um, They talk about, you know, things like eating disorders, which are more common in the West. There's this kind of idea of like a culture brown syndrome. I don't think I actually looked it up for the piece. And I think there's a more (laughs) there's a more recent word for that. But, you know, the idea that um, sometimes psychological problems express themselves in a culture specific way, where kind of an underlying issue is expressed, you know, in a way that's kind of current at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. And that sounded very reasonable to me when I was first coming out. I mean, I didn't believe it, but I didn't not believe it either. I just thought, yeah, okay, this is something that I've heard about. It, it, It could be the case. What I found, you know, over time was that there really isn't any evidence for it. So one of the things that you read from my piece was, you know, the idea that there are many, many more female assigned youth at gender clinics. And that is completely true. But the other thing is that there aren't many, many more female assigned youth who are identifying as transgender. Like if you just ask kids, are you transgender? Mm-hmm. It's a pretty even split. So, you know, if it was a social contagion that was causing, you know, kids to show up in clinics, you would expect it to also be showing up in who was identifying that way. You wouldn't expect to see oh, the clinics, there's some process that's getting people into clinics, such as which parents are more comfortable, people who have a a child who's more masculine who is assigned female, or or kids who have a boy who's very feminine, you know, which kids Mm. are being being more forced to suppress themselves versus which kids are more likely to make it into a clinic. It, It is, I think, a better fit for the data. And, you know, we also talked about detransition rates. So, you know, way back when I was first coming out, there was a a very testable hypothesis of this social contagion idea, which is it's going to lead to a huge wave of detransition and regret. And right. it's been several years now. It's been, you know, over five years now, and we have not seen that. We haven't seen that. So, yeah. you know, I mean, this is, if we're, if we're thinking in a scientific way, they put out a theory, that's totally fine. Do we have evidence for it? No. I think, you know, kind of time to move on at least until some kind of evidence comes and i'm open to you know if there's evidence for it great i'm not great it'd be bad but you know i would very much be willing to accept that yeah what advice do you have for parents that are attempting to talk to their children about these issues well do you mean parents of kids who are trans or parents of kids who are not trans or parents who aren't sure yet i would say all of the above so if you are afraid your child might be trans, which I think is one, you know, big place where parents first start thinking about this. Don't catastrophize and assume there's going to be all these medical steps. Just ask your kid, you know, what they're feeling, what they want, you know, be willing to use a different name. I mean, I try and like even just take the language out of it, like call it a nickname. You know, I mean, your kid can go by a nickname for a couple years and then go back and they're not going to be harmed by that. You don't need to uh-huh. jump to this is their identity. This is the decision for the rest of their life. That's something that kind of becomes clear over time as they try things out and as you see the response. So, you know, is the kid feeling better? Are they doing better? Or is it just always the next thing or they're always feeling worse? You know what I mean? Um, Or does it just, you know, it's something they try out for a while and 
then they um, move on to. I mean, I do think that people, and this is getting into like other parents, I do think that people sort of genuinely see that more kids are kind of experimenting with this, that more kids are having a, a presentation that's less traditionally masculine or feminine. And sometimes people, I think, genuinely kind of panic that like all of these kids are trans or any kids who who does this is tra- are trans. And this is where, like, I wouldn't call it a social contagion, but there's a social effect where norms are evolving that's kind of separate from something that's almost more of a medical condition that, you know, if that's the case for your kid, you'll kind of know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Who are some of your favorite Twitter followers or just authors in general, thought leaders on on this topic that that our audience might be interested in diving into? Yeah. So, I mean, Julia Serrano is one of the best on this and many other issues. Um, I really recommend the Trans Safety Network. They do really deep research dives on a lot of these questions. Um, my site is Assigned Media. It's assignedmedia.org. I write a lot about these issues and a lot about fact-checking stories when they are not correct. I think that for parents who are seeking resources for their kids, finding a therapist who is gender-affirming, you know, reaching out to the local resources, Mm -hmm. I think people really are afraid that this word gender-affirming means a one-way transition for your kid on day one, and it just means Mm. not chat like not telling a kid they're lying or telling them they're wrong when they tell you who they are it doesn't mean kind of picking something and going only in that direction at all i think that's a great place to to end this for today but um we're going to link to evan's piece in the show notes you should definitely read it and follow his work at assignmedia.org you can check out all of evan's coverage on slate and his important coverage of anti-trans propaganda again at assignedmedia.org. Listeners, if you have a topic you want us to address, you can send us an email at slate.com or better yet, leave us a voicemail at 646-357-9318. That is also where you can send any parenting questions you have. We're going to take another quick break and join you back here for recommendations and a mailbag. We'll be right back after this break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, it's finally time for recommendations. Jamila, what have you got this week? I am recommending the Dear Culture podcast uh, with Panama Jackson. It's part of the Griot's network of podcasts. The Griot is an African-American lifestyle website. 
it's just a great podcast. I was on there. I taped an episode today. I'm excited about uh, Panama has been one of my favorite internet people for, gosh, well over a decade at this point, closing in on almost 20 years, which is scary. He's one of the co-founders of Very Smart Brothers, which was an amazing blog for many years. And he's doing this podcast now. It's super cool. It's weekly. They talk about issues impacting Black America. It's funny. It's fun. Uh, Check it out wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. And to clarify, it's for, not that it's not for kids, but that it's an adult This is an adult, yes, adult show. Yes. Evan, how about you? So I almost feel like a broken record, but I have got to recommend the Washington Post's set of stories. They did a representative sample of transgender adults. Um, It's, I believe, unique. Um, It's the first survey of transgender people in America that use representative sampling methods. They asked them questions about discrimination. They found some really interesting and kind of unexpected things. I think they have four or five stories about this um, so far. And it's just been amazing to see one of the, you know, big national newspapers really take a data driven approach and really invest resources into finding out, you know, who are trans people? What are their lives like? What are they experiencing? So I can't recommend that coverage enough. We'll definitely link to that in our show notes. Um, And my recommendation is something that I've been doing at breakfast lately. My wife leaves for work early. And so I am the one to, to make breakfast and make lunch and get the kids off to school. And there was for a time I was resistant to letting them watch the iPad during breakfast. Cause I was like, no, I've got to have like some meaning, like a meaningful moment with them before school. They don't need to start their day off like this. But at this point I'm just like, fuck it. It is making my mornings so much easier to just let them watch TV for 10 minutes while they're eating breakfast. That way I can, I can make lunch. I can, you know, take care of the dog. I can get dressed. Uh, sometimes I can sneak in a quick workout. So I, I'm ditching the guilt. I am, part of the Rebecca Lavoie school of thought that our kids are going to be fine if we give them a little bit of extra screen time. So um, I don't know if you're in this quandary yourself, parents out there. um, But yeah, it's making my life so much easier. My mom had this exact revelation when I was like 12. (laughs) (laughs) What were you watching when you were 12? eating your cereal there was some like it was like a kids game show i don't even remember what it was called anymore but it was this like kids game show where like i don't know kids answered poll questions and it wasn't on uh it wasn't nickelodeon because we didn't have cable this is that long ago uh-huh. um but yeah i just loved it but my mom was so anti-tv and then finally it was just like just just watch the tv while you're waiting for the bus it's fine <laughs> yeah it's totally fine jamila i assume you're on my side Oh, yeah. We've been doing this for a while. It helps me, you know, Naima can either be on her tablet or watch a little TV for a few minutes while she eats breakfast. That gives me time to make her lunch and pick out her clothes and get us out the door. Much better than when I was a kid. My mom put on the news every morning, like my whole childhood. And I just sat through you know, a good hour of the news was on in the background. It was the Uh soundtrack to me getting ready every day. And it was pretty miserable. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the Weather Channel. It was just like on in my house in the mornings. Remember when we used to have to watch like yeah. the local local forecast on the eights to get to get our local forecast? Yeah, you'd have to wait. You'd have yes. to actually wait to figure out what you're going to wear to school. Yep. Hmm. Well, now we're going to wrap up today with a few listener letters from you. 
Our first one is in response to a question we had about a girl who wanted to convert to Islam, but wanted to start with wearing a headscarf to school and wasn't interested in meeting with faith leaders, Muslim middle schoolers, or attending religious education yet. So we got a response that says, I'm a white person who considered converting to Islam for several years during undergrad. Ultimately, I didn't, and I didn't ever feel, quote, ready to wear a headscarf. But I did take the step of dressing more modestly for a while, long sleeves, loser clothes. The Muslim friends I made during that time were extremely welcoming and eager to educate me about their faith. Like Christianity, Islam's theological position is typically quite welcome to converts. But yeah, a headscarf is a pretty bad first step. I definitely think the parent should see what educational and social opportunities are available at their local mosque. I was a bit older, but the Muslim Student Alliance at my college was very helpful to me. Show her that you respect her interests by buying her a Quran and offering her some more modest clothing that isn't specifically Muslim. Another step that can feel meaningful without risking cultural appropriation is looking into resources for learning Arabic. Even just one of the language learning apps is a fine place to get started with that. And I 100% agree. If a kid is engaging in attention-seeking behavior, it likely means that they've got some unmet needs and you should try to address those rather than just calling out the behavior itself. Oh, I definitely think that's a good place to start, you know, reading the Quran, taking the time to talk to people who are Muslim, visiting a mosque, educating yourself about the religion. And if she wants to start wearing modest clothing that isn't specifically Muslim, I think that's fine, you know, but I am in full agreement that the headscarf is a terrible place to start. We also got this lovely letter in response to a question about throwing a backyard birthday when everyone around you is going all out. Hello, longtime listener here, going back to Dan and Allison days. I loved your advice to the mom worrying about having a backyard party for her three-year-old. In fact, my mom and I published a book about this very subject. It's called The Best Buddy's Birthday, The Complete Guide to Homegrown Parties. I think it would be a marvelous resource for any listeners looking to throw this type of simple, sane, inexpensive party for their kids up to age 10. Thank you for being my rock all these years as I navigate parenting my now teenagers. This is great. Thanks for this resource. I'm definitely going to check it out. I bet you've got some good ideas here. Thank you for sticking with us all these years. Yeah, totally. This is really a tour de force in terms of episode variation because we got this letter in response to a question about relationships changing with your dog now that you have a newborn in the house. Hi, the last episode about having a dog with a newborn resonated with me. I have a now two-year-old, but it was tough to bring a newborn home for the first time with two cats and a dog in the house. We were probably overly nervous and protective of our baby initially, but we have figured out a great balance. I wanted to share a couple naptime tips that have worked really great for us. Our dog always barks at neighbors and delivery trucks, so we would do the following to keep her from waking the baby. Put on the radio or a podcast in the living room where the dog is to try to block out outside noise and always keep the curtains closed so she didn't see passersby. The extra noise was usually enough to keep her from hearing most outside noises. If necessary, we would also lock her in a room at the opposite end of the house during nap time. So if she did bark, it wouldn't wake baby. Now our son sleeps so hard it hardly even matters if the dog barks a few times. Best of luck, new mom. Um, Those are great tips. I'm Mm -hmm. actually going to gonna try that next time Ami is is napping because Rumi our dog has definitely woken him uh, before finally I want to share one last letter that's in response to curbing a four-year-old's behavior issues hi mom and dad I wanted to comment on the letter writer's suggestion that parents who use gentle parenting should not implement consequences with their children I am a developmental psychologist who researches parents emotional experiences and a mom of two young kids 
You did address this during the episode, but I think it's worth repeating. Gentle parenting does not mean no consequences. This is a really problematic story that's being told about gentle parenting and one that is harmful to kids. Gentle parenting, which is a vague concept that does not have a clear definition or guidelines, is really just about acknowledging and validating children's emotions. This is in line with decades of research on parenting styles and attachment, all of which demonstrate that parenting in a loving and sensitive way, but with firm boundaries, which includes consequences, sets children up for the best success in the long run. It teaches your kids how to deal with real-life things while they are in a safe, loving environment. Go ahead and start that swear jar. On another note, I can't say enough good things about this podcast. I appreciate the honest sharing of your parenting experiences. The fails in particular are my favorite. Being honest about the ways in which parenting is hard and doesn't always go perfectly helps other parents feel seen and reduces the guilt and shame around parenting. Thank you. That was sweet. Mm-hmm. Great letter. Yeah, this is an embarrassment of riches. Sincerely, thank you to all of our listeners who wrote in. We love hearing from you and we love sharing your advice. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for a future show, please send us an email at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-357-9318. That's 646-357-9318. We want you to memorize that hotline number. This episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson and Maura Curry. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Slate Audio. For Evan Urquhart and Jamila Lemieux, I'm Zach Rosen. Thank you so much for listening.